Good morning. If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the 18th chapter of John's Gospel? Boy, this podium gets smaller all the time, doesn't it? (laughs) John 18, keep your fingers there. We'll get back to it in just a moment. First of all, let us go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the opportunity of being in your house today and being with your people. What a privilege it is to be able to come and to worship you, to lift up our voices in praise and music and in looking into your word. And Lord, it is my prayer that you will speak to each heart here this morning. You know our needs. You know what is the best for us. And I just pray that this worship service would work to making that a reality. Thank you, Father, for being here. You, Jesus said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And we know that he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. And we praise you. For it is in Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen. One of the biggest political upsets in American history took place in 1992. It was a presidential election year. A young guy from Arkansas who nobody had heard of except people in Arkansas was running against an incumbent Republican president. Bush was well-liked. Now, his ratings had been going down a little bit, but he was a president who sent an army over to Iraq. Iraq had taken over a a country next door and Kuwait, and Kuwait was uh, rich in oil. And that's why Saddam Hussein wanted it so badly. And the UN threatened Hussein, and he laughed it off. And Bush told him, either you get out of Kuwait, or I'm sending my army over. To which Hussein arrogantly said, send them over, it'll be the mother of all wars. Well, mother couldn't make it, and she sent the little girl. (laughs) Because when our army got over there, and Iraq had the greatest army among the Arab world at that time. And he was very proud of this army, and he really thought this army could take on anybody, anywhere, and they would win. We sent our troops over there. And his troops could not surrender fast enough. I mean, it was a total embarrassment to this guy. Well, as a result of that, Bush's approval ratings went through the ceiling. I mean, he probably had the greatest approval ratings at that moment as any president. And in 92, when they were getting ready to find somebody to run against them, they thought, who's going to do it? 
And really, most political analysts think that Clinton was really a sacrificial candidate. They figured whoever we put up is going to lose, so we'll put somebody up there who nobody's heard of and let him get slaughtered, and then four years from now, we won't have to go against an incumbent president, and we'll have a good chance of winning it. And lo and behold, Clinton wins the nomination. You know, this happens in every area of life, though, not just politics. We find that a lot of times in sports, some underling team goes against a mighty powerhouse somewhere. Nobody gives them a chance to win, and lo and behold, the underdog wins. It happens in the business world. It happens everywhere you can imagine, and it also happens in the spiritual world. And we don't have to look any further than our text this morning to see how this has happened with God's people. Beginning in verse 15, if you have your Bible open, and Baptist should by, even by now be, be to John 18, I hope. But anyway, beginning in verse 15, and Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple, that disciple was known unto the high priest and went in with Jesus into the place of the high priest. But Peter stood at the door without and went out that other, and without the other disciple which was known unto the high priest and spoken to her that kept the door and brought in Peter. Then saith the damsel that kept the door uh, unto Peter, are not thou also one of this man's disciples? He said, I am not. And the servants and the officers stood there, who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold. And they warmed themselves, and Peter stood with them, and he warmed, warmed himself. Drop down to verse 25. And Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. They therefore said unto him, Art not thou also one of this man's disciples? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, being his kinsman, whose ear Peter had cut off, said, Did not I see thee in the garden with him? Then Peter denied it again, and immediately the cock, Let's get the picture. Jesus had just earlier that evening observed the Passover with his disciples. And the Passover is the highest, uh, what do they call it? Uh, highest uh, event on the Jewish calendar. And this was the third time that Jesus, with his disciples, had observed the Passover. But this time, he did something different. 
this time, after it was over, he took the bread and he said, this represents my body. And he passed it around and each tore off a piece of the unleavened bread. And then he said, take and eat. Then he took the goblet that had the fruit of the vine in it. And he held it up and he said, this represents my blood. And he handed the goblet to the one next to him. And each man took a sip and passed it around. This was the first time he had ever done that. And they could not get their mind around the fact that Jesus was going to die. He's the Messiah. How in the world can the Messiah die? The Jews had thought for centuries and taught that when the Messiah came, he would be a David and a Solomon all rolled into one. And the golden years of Israel would be ushered in again. And they were convinced this is the Messiah. For three years they had walked with this man. They had listened to the wisdom like they had never heard it before. They watched the miracles that this man did. They were thoroughly convinced this is the Messiah. And yet he talks about dying. He talks about going to the cross. This went against everything they'd ever been taught as they were growing up about the Messiah. And Jesus said to them, he said to Peter, he said, you know, Peter, tonight you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice. Three times. And Peter said, not so, Lord. I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. And you know what? That wasn't idle boasting on Peter's part. He really believed that. He really meant it. He dearly loved the Lord. And he would gladly have sacrificed his life for the Lord. Except he didn't know what was coming. And Jesus did. And so, we have to look no further than our text to see what happens when a person is overconfident. Jesus said to Peter, you know, before the cock crows in the morning, you will deny me three times. Then he takes them from the upper room where they had observed the Passover, where they had observed the first Lord's Supper. They go down to Brook Kedron over to the Mount of Olives. And when they get to the outskirts of the Mount of Olives, he says to eight of the disciples, because Judas had already betrayed him and Judas had already taken his own life. He was no longer a part of the group. And he says to eight of them, you stay right here. And you watch and you pray. And then he goes a little further into the garden and he takes with him Peter and James and John. And he says to them, you wait here and you watch and pray. And then Jesus went a little bit further into the interior of the garden of Gethsemane, 
falls prostrate on the ground and begins pouring his heart out to the Father. You know, Jesus was human as well as divine. And the human side of Jesus begins to show through. He begins to pray, Father, isn't there some other way we can do this? I don't want to go that cross. He had, I'm sure, seen people crucified because in those days when they crucified somebody, they did it at the public square. They did it at the crossroads. They did it where more people could see it as a, an example. If you get out of line, this could happen to you. And he knew the excruciating pain that went along with crucifixion. And so he pleaded with the Father, isn't there some other way we can do this? And then finally, he ends by saying, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes back to the disciples, and they were asleep. And he wakes them, and he says, couldn't you watch an hour? And then he leaves them again, and he says again, watch and pray. And he goes back into the interior. Again he prays. And when he comes back, Guess what? They're asleep. Jesus makes an interesting statement. Said to Peter and the other two, he said, the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he said, come on. The crowd, the mob is coming. And sure enough, you looked in the distance, and here was this mob coming toward Jesus. The high priest had gone to the rent-a-mob union and got a bunch of (laughs) thugs to come out and to take Jesus. You know, Peter had said earlier, Lord, I will go to prison for you. I will die for you. You know, for a moment it looked like Peter was going to fulfill that promise because the first man who reaches out to get his grubby hands on the Lord, Peter grabs his sword and whacks at him and the guy ducks and off comes his ear. You know, when I get to heaven, I hope that the Lord fills in some blanks for me. I would love to know the rest of the story about that servant whose ear got whacked off. Imagine if you'd been him and you'd been fed all this nonsense about how evil this man was and we've got to destroy him and you want to be the first one to get there to get your hands on him and you make it and as you reach out some guy grabs the sword swings it at you and you duck and pretty soon you're feeling something warm and wet 
coming down the side of your face and you reach up and you look and it's blood. And then you look down and there's your ear. <laughs> and this man who you thought was so evil reaches down, picks it up, places it on the side of his head. And just like that, it's just like it always was. I mean, he reaches up. He can't believe it. The ear is there. It feels normal. No more bleeding. Oh, I would love to know the rest of the story about that servant. What must have gone through his mind? I thought this guy was evil. I thought this guy was something that we was enemy number one that we had to get rid of. And lo and behold, he reaches down and he heals my ear. And you can't tell that was ever off. There's another guy in this story that we're not going to look at today, but his name was Barabbas. I'd like to know the rest of the story about him. When he finds out that the people chose him to be released, even though he was public enemy number one, and let this other man die in his place. Wouldn't you like to know what happened to Barabbas later on in life? I've got a feeling he changed a little bit. Don't you think so? And so here we are in the garden. And Jesus said to Peter, Peter, put up the sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And so Peter does, and all of a sudden, His heart melted. He looked at this mob. There's only 12 of them. And these guys have clubs and they have swords and they have all kinds of other equipment for fighting. And they have nothing. What happened? Notice it says here, and Peter followed afar off. Can't you just see him running from one tree to the other, getting behind the tree and making sure he can still see Jesus? And he goes to the next tree and he hides and, and he waits and he can still see Jesus. And then they take Jesus into the court area, shut the gate. And Peter comes up to the gate, can't get in, but one of the disciples did get in. And it was probably John. And the reason I think it was probably John is that when you read the Gospel of John, John usually speaks of himself in the third person. Rarely ever does he name himself by name. He refers to himself often as that disciple whom Jesus loved. And so the disciple, whether it was John or one of the others, said to the girl that was keeping the gate, let him in too. And she opens the gate 
and lets Peter come in. There are three things that come to mind as I think about this passage here, and as I think about Peter and the sin of overconfidence, we're all guilty of that to one degree or another, aren't we? Overconfidence causes one to follow Christ from afar. Maybe at one time we were right there with him. But something has happened. And like a wedge, it sort of came between you and the Lord, and the next thing, you're further and you're further and you're further and you're further from the Lord. Now, if it had said, uh, and Peter followed, well, now that would sound all right. That would sound like Simon Peter that we know and love and admire so much. But it didn't say that. It didn't stop there. It said, and Peter followed from afar. Jesus gave a parable in Luke's gospel about the shepherd who went out with a hundred sheep one morning. And he takes them out to a place where they can graze and there's plenty of water. And at the end of the day, he brings them back. And as they're going into the sheepfold, he's counting them. And there's 99. He started out with 100. Well, now he could have said, well, 99 out of 100 is a pretty good deal. But he didn't. And so he leaves the sheep in the pen for somebody else to watch, and he goes back out and looks for the lost sheep, and he looks and he looks until he finds it. I wonder how the sheep got lost. Well, sheep are the most docile of animals. They really don't have any sense of direction. And it could be that the sheep was grazing, and over here there was a a larger clump of grass and he goes over there to graze for a while and then he goes to another one and the other sheep are going in a different direction and for all we know he may have even fallen into a ravine and when a shepherd gets back at the end of the day one is missing and so he goes out and he looks for that sheep the sheep did not set out to get lost mind you And we don't set out to drift from the Lord. Have you ever noticed that drifting is so gradual? You're not even aware you're drifting. Until all of a sudden you look around and some landmark that you were gauging everything by is gone. And the next thing you know, man, I'm further downstream than I realize. And that's exactly probably what happened to the sheep. He just kept going over further and further into the green grass. But the good news of the story is the shepherd 
went out to find him and didn't stop until they found him. And he brought him back and he had him on his shoulder. And when he got back, he said, Rejoice, because that which was lost is now found. My home church has some stained glass windows. And one of the stained glass windows is of the shepherd coming back with a sheep on his shoulders and the smile on the shepherd's face, the joy of finding that lost sheep. As a kid, instead of listening to the preacher, I'd always look at the stained glass windows. <laughs> and I always liked that one. Overconfidence not only causes us to follow from afar, but it also causes us to identify with the enemy. Look at verse 18 again. And the servants and officers stood there who had made a fire of coals, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves, and Peter stood and warned himself. It says that it was cool that evening, and so they built a fire. But you know, I've got a hunch Peter wasn't cold. I think under his collar some perspiration and so he makes his way over I'm having trouble with this thing so he makes his way over to where the others are and really what he wanted to do was lose himself in a group the last thing he wanted was for anybody to identify him as being a disciple of this man who's on trial over here. And so Peter joins the group, tries to mix in with them, and he no more than gets there and someone says, hey, haven't I seen you with this guy that's on trial over here? Aren't you one of his disciples? And Peter said, you don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who that guy is. No, it's not me. And it wasn't long until another person came by and said to him, hey, I know I've seen you with this man. You're a Galilean. I can tell by your accent it gives you away. No, no, he said, that's not true. I don't know this man, never saw him. And it wasn't long until the third person said, you have got to be this man's disciple. I know I have seen you with him. And Mark and Matthew's gospel tells us that Peter cursed and swore and said, I tell you, I don't know this man. And those words had no more than gotten out of his lips when in the distance he heard the crowing of the rooster. And he remembered the words of Jesus in the upper room. Peter, before the cock crows in the morning, you will deny me 
three times. So Peter, I guess, feels like by using foul language and swearing will convince them, I don't know this guy. Right after I retired, I got a job taking veterans to doctor's appointments, and most of them were in Battle Creek at Fort Custer. In Niles, there's an apartment that houses up to 16 homeless veterans. And if ever there were two words that never should be together, it's the word homeless and veteran. And all of these guys were homeless because of substance abuse of one kind or another. And when they first came there, Marilyn, the lady who was over this ministry, said he would sit down with them and she would tell them, now, we have random drug testing here. And if you get caught with it in your system, either booze or drugs in your system, we warn you the first time, the second time you're gone. And we got a new guy in. And I was taking them in the van over to Fort Custer. And the new guy was sitting in the back seat with somebody else. And I mean, he was turning the air blue with his language. Now, I was in the Navy, and they don't use King James English in the Navy. But I heard, I heard some new words that day I never heard before, and I'm not going to tell you what they were. And the guy he was sitting next to said, hey, did you know the driver's a retired Baptist preacher? He said, really? He said, yeah. Pretty soon he hollered up and he said, hey, Alan, what do you think about swearing? I said, well, as far as I'm concerned, strong language is a sign of a weak mind. <laughs> well, how do you figure that? I said, well, the English language is a very well-developed, very expressive language. It doesn't take a back seat to any language. And for a person to have to hobble through life on the crutch of profanity in order to communicate just says that he or she is too lazy to study their own mother tongue and appreciate it. Then I said, you know, you can teach a parrot to cuss. And a parrot has got a very small brain. So I guess you might say, any old bird brain can cuss. <laughs> well, let me tell you, it got quiet in the back seat. <laughs> well, here was Peter wanting to identify with the crowd. And make and so in order to be one of the boys, he picks up some of the language, thinking that will satisfy their curiosity, but it didn't. 
two of the Gospels tell us that when the rooster crowed in the distance, Peter remembered the words of Jesus. And it says, and he went out and wept bitterly. I've got a hunch those were the bitterest tears that had ever been shed by anybody. What Jesus had warned him earlier had come into full circle. First of all, you will deny me, which he did. And you will not admit to anybody that you ever knew me, which he did. You know, if he had just taken the warning of Jesus in the upper room, when Jesus warned him what was going to happen, looking down not very far into the night, and if Peter had just taken him seriously there, this wouldn't have happened. It would have changed altogether. But you know what the good news is? The good news is that the Lord doesn't give up on anybody. Aren't you glad? Because, buddy, if he gave up on anybody, I wouldn't have a prayer. And neither would you. Overconfidence not only causes us to follow from afar, and not only does it cause us to identify with the enemy, but following from afar causes us to deny that we ever knew the Master. And isn't it interesting that on the first day of the resurrection, the only day of the resurrection, when the women came to the tomb, Jesus said, go tell my disciples and Peter. He singled Peter out. And aren't you glad he did? Because I'm sure Peter would have thought, well, he doesn't mean me, though. But he did mean him. And when we find ourselves in a position where we're not as close to the Lord as we used to be, and we find that we have been following him from afar, he isn't through with us. He picks us up, brushes us off, and puts us back on the straight and narrow. I remember my grandmother used to say to me when I was a kid, and I needed a lot of warning, believe me. Alan, remember this. When you play with fire, sooner or later, you're going to get burned. Well, that is true spiritually speaking, believe me. But you know what? Peter was reinstated. Once again became the leader of the 12. And as far as we know, he did die a martyr's death. According to tradition, 
when they got ready to crucify him, he said, wait a minute. I don't deserve to die the way my Savior did. And they said, okay, we can fix that. And so they put him on the cross, and they turned the cross upside down. He didn't complain, though, about dying for his Savior. So when we're tempted sometimes to turn our back on the Lord, pretend, man, I I don't know this guy. I had no idea who he is. Just remember, the Lord is there for us. He loves us. And yes, we can drift and we can get far away from him, but there's that pull. It's called the Holy Spirit that lives within every believer. And you know, there may be somebody here this morning and you have never experienced that. You have never in your life experienced what it means to invite Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit to come and to take over. I got good news for you. There isn't a better time than right now. This is the most opportune time you're ever going to have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You know, life is full of decisions. When you're a kid, you have to decide, well, who am I going to play with today and what are we going to play? But then as you get older, the decisions become bigger. But let me tell you something, the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life, what am I going to do with the claims of Jesus Christ on my life? I was 19 when I came to know Jesus. And I have never regretted it. And I wish I could say, and I've never failed him, but that would be the biggest lie you ever heard. But I know what it feels like to be picked up by him and brushed off and forgiven and put back on the straight and narrow. And for him to say, do what I've asked you to do. This morning, we're inviting you. If you have never, ever committed your life to Christ, you have never invited him to come in and take over, we're inviting you to do that. He will put meaning and direction and purpose in your life that you've never had before. Believe me, I know. All we have to do is just finally say, Lord, I'm yours. Will you come in and take over? What is our hymn of invitation? Okay. Okay.